Welcome to Real Life Christianity with Deacon John Lozano. This podcast is about real life and living it in the light of the gospel. Real things, everyday things, relationships at home and work, real issues that the world presents every day. The complexities, difficulties, joys and aspirations of being human. Deacon John is a real guy. A deacon, but also a husband, a dad, a businessman, as well as an experienced counselor, educator, and author. And Deacon John invites us to come as you are as he brings the transformative power of the gospel down from the clouds to real life, your life. Welcome, Deacon John here, Real Life Christianity. I'm glad you tuned in. Today, I'd like to talk about probably the most famous parable of Jesus called the prodigal son. I often often think if you're on a desert island and you could only take one story of Jesus with you, this would be it. And this little story reveals All of it, all of the gospel in so many ways is here. There is uh, so much in this parable. Uh, So I'm going to do two podcasts on this. I'm going to focus today on the younger son and a later one on the older son, simply because there's so much here. First, uh, it's good to know that the title of this parable, the prodigal son, is not really a good title. Uh, It wasn't written in the Bible that way. It was just the way people put the Bible together later. The better title is the loving father, because the main character in this parable is the father. He is present throughout the whole parable. And the second thing to consider is that it's a story of two sons who don't understand their father. They just don't get him. They miss him. So let's read the first part of this story. It's from the Gospel of Luke. When tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to listen to Jesus, But the Pharisees and scribes began to complain, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them a parable. A man had two sons. And the younger son said to the father, Father, give me my share of your estate that should come to me. So the father divided the property between them. And after a few days, the younger son collected all his belongings and set off to a distant country where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he found himself in dire need. So he hired himself out to one of the local citizens who sent him to his farm to tend to the swine. And he longed to eat his fill of the pods on which the pigs fed, 
but no one gave him any. Coming to his senses, he thought, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat, but here am I dying from hunger. I shall get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired workers. So he got up and went back to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him, was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father ordered his servants quickly, bring out the finest robe and put, them, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and take the fatted calf and slaughter it. Then the celebration began with a feast. The father said, This son of mine was dead, has come back to life. He was lost and he has been found. The younger son said to his father, Give me my share of your estate. That should come to me. Give me, basically, he's saying, what I will get when you die. In other words, you are dead to me. This is so bad, so insulting. Uh, one scholar said the father could have killed his son for such an insult. You know, it, it, the son says this, give me my share of my estate. Three words he uses the word, me, my, me. It's all about him. It's all about the self, himself. St. Augustine said sin is being caved in on yourself. Caved in on yourself. It's when we break a relationship with God and others and thereby break relationship with ourself. We see here first that the son does not understand the father. He only sees the father's money. He missed his love and the relationship he offered. You know, it reminds me of people who are brought up in Christianity and, you know, they say, yeah, my parents brought me to the church all the time. I've been around it. I get it. It's not for me. <laughs> it's like this son was always around his father. But... Did he ever or do we ever really personally engage and ponder Jesus? Did this son personally engage and ponder his father? Probably not. He assumed he knew what was there. And so he missed it. So the father gives him the money. God gives us freedom, sets us free. Do with it what we will. 
There's no control in love. Love is free or it's not love. So he lets his son go, who goes to a far off country. And in Greek, that means he entered into a place of great emptiness. Great empty space. You know, we know this. <laughs> We've all been there when we are separated from God, haven't we? We feel that emptiness inside. It's like that gap in our heart that falls out on Sunday night after all the activities of the weekend, and we look outside, and there's this empty place within. And we wonder, is this all there is? Blaise Pascal said, we're made with a God-shaped hole that only God can fill. That hole, that empty space is our separation from God. That's where the sun was, and, and we've been there. The sun squandered it all on himself, and he ends up feeding pigs. Now, he's a Jew. Jews think pigs are unclean. And he's caring for the pigs. And he's so hungry, he longs for the food the pigs eat. This means the sun has hit bottom. A deep, dark, hard bottom. You know, it's often when we come to a bottom that we come to our senses, like he did. It was there that it began. In AA, they say it all begins when you hit your bottom. This is a tough place. But it can be a place of sight. He begins to see that his servants get enough food to eat. So he says he will go to his father and say, I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired workers. You know, here the son begins to get the father, but only partially, only halfway. He now sees that he can go to his father and repent and ask forgiveness. And that's good. But he still does not fully get the father. He says, treat me as one of your hired workers. He does not get or understand the father how he sees him and loves him. He has no idea about what will happen next. For while this son is a long way off, the father sees him. There's a whole homily right here. Since the son left, what has the father been doing? Looking, waiting. He looks and waits, looks and waits for his son to return. Friends, how do you image God? Is he hard to get? His attention, his love? Is God distracted and involved with other things? You have to get his attention. Is your God waiting to be appeased? He's a taskmaster, a lawgiver? Is he just somebody waiting for us to be good so 
we deserve is love? Or is your God like the Father in this story? Like a father today who's at a soccer game, yelling and rooting and cheering for his daughter, his son, who roots for us. A God who prays for us, who longs for us, who's on our side, waiting, always gazing upon us. Imagine a God always gazing upon us, his full attention on you and me, knowing how hard it is and rooting for us and longing to embrace us. For this is what he does to the son. He runs to him, embraces him, now, at that time, an older, aged male father would never run to someone. It was culturally unacceptable. People came to him. He sat down, and you came to him. This behavior was unheard of. It was out of the ordinary. It was reckless. It is the reckless love of God. His love is reckless and unheard of. He then embraces the sun. I often wonder, how did the sun smell? What was on him, his clothes, his skin? He was feeding pigs. And he was embraced as he was. As he was. He didn't get cleaned up before he was embraced. Then the father puts a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and a cloak, all symbols of sonship. He's reestablished as his son. The father does not hear the words of the son, I no longer deserve to be called your son. He ignores that. It's as if the father's action is screaming out, you are my son. You are my daughter. You will always be my son, my daughter. You changed. You went away. But I never changed. My love for you never changed. This story can reveal some pretty significant psychological and spiritual struggles that you and I often have ourselves. Friends, what do we do with our sin? We all sin. We've done some of us some pretty bad stuff. How do we see it? Are we like the son who says, I no longer deserve to be called your son, to be called your daughter? I don't deserve it. Maybe he, the son, got that past that. Maybe he eventually accepted his sonship, but we don't know. At this point, he says he doesn't deserve it. 
But I, knew, I do know that many of us are like him. His initial refusal of his father's love and sonship is what we often do. You know, many of us see our past sin as an obstacle to God. You know, I'm so bad, I did this. I can't be loved. I can't ever be seen as really good. Maybe other people can, but they didn't do this. We say, you know, we play some serious head and heart games with ourselves and with God. And it's around sin. So many people cannot accept mercy and forgiveness. They just can't or they won't. It's very tragic. And they live with a sadness within themselves. Because the refusal of that leaves us sad. Leaves us caved in on ourselves and our sin. It's essentially believing more in our sin than we do in God. Let me say that again. We're essentially believing more in our sin than we do in God and in his mercy. And at some level, I think we all do this. You know, psychologically, there's several reasons for this. Some of us, some people want to punish themselves. You know, they think they deserve it for what they did. Or they want to prove that they're unworthy. You know, they they carry a sense within of their unworthiness, and they want to affirm that. Or they want to affirm a profound, poor self-image. And many, I think, just live in fear. I know myself this way. I don't know myself another way. And I'm afraid of the way life would be and I would be if I changed. I'm afraid of the unknown. So I refuse to surrender to love, to just let it go, to let my sin go, and let someone love me. You know, letting go of control, letting go of our self and the life we have, is no small thing. It's big. You know, Corey Ten Boom uh, once said that God casts our sin into the deep water and puts a no, and puts a no fishing sign there. <laughs> and then she says, we get out our deep sea scuba gear and go in and bring them up. We want to say to ourselves and to God, this is me. But no, friends, it's not you. That wasn't the sun that came back. The sun was the father's son, reinstated. You see, friends, God doesn't even see your sin. God doesn't even see your sin. He sees only you 
daughter, a son he loves. He, he doesn't remember your sin. As far as the east is from the west, the scripture says, so I have cast your sin from me. You know, I, I'd like to kind of end with a, on this on a personal note, too, that I myself have struggled with faith. And my biggest struggle has been learning or discovering how God really loves me. <laughs> it sounds simple, I know, but it's been my biggest revelation and struggle. How does God love me? I'm often amazed at how distorted my image of God has been. I mean, one of my primary distortions, to be honest, is simply put that I, I had to earn it. You know, I, I think I got it growing up, school and parents and different things. And I really, at some deep psychological way, think that if I'm a good boy and I work hard and I do things that are right, God will love me. God will be close to me. God will answer my prayers. And if I'm not, he won't. Or at least it'll be diminished. Over and over, God has revealed to me how wrong I have been and maybe how wrong I still am. His love is complete. His love and forgiveness is complete, and it never changes. I change. He does not change. You know, in this parable, there's a, a, a profound statement that really affects me. It says that when the son came back, the father put a ring on his finger. That ring in the Bible is a wedding ring. The whole Bible, Old and New Testament, God reveals that he wants to marry his people. That's you and me. Jesus is the bridegroom. We are his bride. This image is very profound for me. This parable has God placing a wedding ring on his son's finger, meaning he wants to place that on my finger. You know, I had a ring once placed on my finger when I married my wife. She placed the ring. We don't put it on ourselves. Someone puts it on us, and then we're wed. Uh, some often say, when they do that, with this ring, I thee wed. The ring is an eternal symbol. It has no beginning and no end. You know, we, we don't always love like this, and even our marriages fail sometimes. But there is one marriage, one ring, that never fails. The ring our father places on our finger. This never ends. This ring never fails. The ring of our Father 
of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit. You know, in prayer, I would invite you to imagine God as best you can, Jesus, Father, slipping a ring on your finger. Let him slowly place it up your finger to the end and leave it there. Now there's an image, there's a prayer, there's a revelation. You are wed to him, and his love never fails, and it's eternal. It's complete, regardless of how often I fail. You know, friends, I'm going to end with a little thought about this week that's coming up. It's Holy Week. And this week we will be reflecting on the passion and death of Jesus and on Easter, the resurrection. This passion and death of Jesus is difficult to reflect on. It's hard. At first glance, it looks as if Jesus is passive in this. Everything's happening to him. But he's also active here. He is doing something for us. And it looks horrible. In fact, the crucifixion and the passion is horrible. But it's also very beautiful. You know, the first Christians struggled with that cross. It, it, it's For them, it was an utter failure. It was horrendous. They had no place to put it. But they somehow saw and connected sin with the cross. Right away, early on, that our sin had been dealt with dealt with. In Jesus' crucifixion, we see the opening of the divine heart, the divine love for us, so that we could see that no sin of ours, no sin of ours could finally separate us from the love of God. The crucifixion is the opening of the divine heart so that we could see that no sin of ours could finally separate us from the love of God. For this cross is the unequivocal, the absolute revelation that your sin and mine are forgiven, forgiven. That we change, but his love never changes. We are loved eternally by the Father who welcomes us home and who loves us.
We thank you for listening and for sharing the good news with Deacon John, who asks you to come back often and support him by subscribing, by rating the site, and please share our site with others in your circle.